Hello, friends, and welcome to episode 783 of the Juicebox Podcast. David Walton is on the podcast today. David is a type one who runs T1D Exchange. We're always complaining. Things don't happen fast enough. Why don't they come up with a new adhesive quicker? Why don't they do this faster? How come they don't update that better? How come Well, because you have to do research and it takes people to do research and people don't open themselves up to research. So Dave and I are going to talk about that today and discuss how you can help right from your sofa. I tell you every, every episode, like right here, I say, hey, if you're a U.S. resident who has type 1 diabetes or you're a U.S. resident who is the caregiver type, you must have heard this by now, go to t1dexchange.org forward slash juicebox. You join the registry, you complete the survey, and you're finished. That's it. It takes like 10 minutes. And I say it, and I say it, and I say it, and... Uh, okay. Uh, sorry about that. Um... Nothing you hear in the Juicebox podcast should be considered advice, medical or otherwise. Always consult a physician before making any changes to your healthcare plan. Anyway, this is a good conversation. I'm going to explain why this is so important to research, and, and I hope you guys check it out. Give it a try. This show is sponsored today by the glucagon that my daughter carries, Gvoke Hypopen. Find out more at gvokeglucagon.com forward slash juicebox. Today's conversation is also sponsored by the Contour Next One blood glucose meter. This blood glucose meter is everything to me. It is the easiest to use, easiest to carry, most accurate blood glucose meter my daughter has ever held, used, had in her purse. I've never seen one better is what I'm saying. Contournext.com forward slash juice box. There are links in the show notes of your podcast player and links at juiceboxpodcast.com to Contour, Gvoke, T1D Exchange, and all of the rest. Hi, this is Dave Walton. I'm the CEO of T1D Exchange uh, and have been in that role for the past uh, three and a half years. I've worked at a number of device companies in diabetes uh, since 2006 and in healthcare my entire career. Also have been living with type 1 since uh, January of 1996 while diagnosed while I was in graduate school um, and have a 13-year-old nephew with type 1 as well. So uh, very focused and committed to working in the, uh, the diabetes space and specifically trying to help improve the state of affairs for people living with type 1. Well, thank you for coming back. I, you were on episode, hold on a second, I will find it. I thought I had it. You were on, oh, wow, episode 330, April of 2020. This episode will be more like 800. So I've been, yeah. I've been as busy as you have been, I think. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and that was right in the beginning of COVID when we spoke. So it was definitely a, uh, a unique time, no for care. sure. A lot, a lot feels like it's changed since then. Well, uh, you know, we'll give people a little bit of an overview of your uh, of your life with type 1, but I know we talked about it before. Um, you said you were diagnosed in 96, which sticks in my head because that's the year I was married and, um, makes me feel like you've had diabetes a long time. Cause I know I feel like I've been married a long time. Um, anyway, that I'm sure my wife won't hear that, uh, diagnosed <laughs> in grad school, you said. Yes. Uh, at, after, after one semester and I, uh, I literally had just begun dating 
my now wife. Um, so we're, we just hit 25 years. So we've been almost the same trajectory as you have. Mm-hmm. Um, but literally, it was within a week of us starting, you know, your relationship. Date, uh, yeah, that I got uh, the symptoms first start presented themselves. So and how did they hit urination? Losing uh, weight? Telltale. Yes. Uh, couldn't quench my thirst. I I actually chugged a, at the time. I think there was the Magnum at 7-Eleven. It was like at least 44 ounces of soda. And it was birch beer. You know, I, I was so thirsty and I wasn't thinking that it was diabetes and sugar would would just exacerbate the issue. So um, that, that certainly wasn't uh, wasn't helpful to my plight. But um, it was about a week of that going to the bathroom like 15 times a day, just feeling totally different, dropping 15 pounds. But when my vision got blurry in class, I couldn't read an overhead projector from sitting back in the in the room. And I said, why doesn't the professor adjust this? And they said, what do you mean? It's perfectly fine. And I'm like, no, it's not. And I'm like, yes, it is. And that's that's when um, I looked at someone. I said, yeah, I better I better go to the student health and something, something's not right. Yeah. Well, you can't see things that. Yeah. Although I interviewed somebody recently that said they ignored their blurry vision for weeks. And I, I thought, boy, I must be a baby. If my vision, I'd run right to the top. Yeah, it wouldn't be. It was that day. Yeah. I, I walked in that afternoon after class to the student health because that blurry vision definitely threw me. Yeah. Uh, no, I imagine it would. Even at, I mean, and you weren't that young. You were old enough to be able to think through your problem a little bit. Like, I bet you if it would have happened when you were a freshman, you would have known what to do, maybe. <laughs> uh, okay. So you've had diabetes quite a long time. I mean, that long, did you start with regular and MPH? Yes. You did. Okay. Cumulant R. Uh, the NPH, um, I had a a one touch or a one touch two glucose meter. Uh, it was handed to me at the ho- at Penn at the ho- um, at the at the, uh, the hospital, and um, yeah, and I was kind of off to the races. Uh, I was put on a dosing regimen that I realized years later wasn't necessarily the right one, um, and I was on that for probably uh 12 13 years yeah that's uh, you think yeah, no, 10 years i was on that regimen for 10 years because i you know i i i was doing okay but not great my a1c's were always in the sevens but i never could get below seven and i'm like why why can't i get below and you know i wasn't testing a ton maybe three to four times a day um and i started working at animus uh, the insulin pump company that J&J acquired and then later uh, divested or just exited the business. Um, and I started reading uh, about formulas for dosing and things for pumps, uh, books and, and things to educate myself because I'd never worked in the industry of diabetes. I just had dealt with it myself. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, I learned about these rules, rule of 1800, the rule of 500, uh, with your insulin to carb ratios and all of that. And I, I just realized, well, why am I on the ratios I'm at? They don't even come close to these formulas. So I just made the change that day at work. And so let's see what happens. And my blood sugar instantly got better. And my next day, one C I came in and, and, uh, I had a six, eight or a six, nine and my endos like, what? Hey, what did you do? I said, I, I changed my dosing to one that matches the formulas. And he just gave me this look like, Oh, those. <laughs> and, and 
but you know, I had seen a couple different endocrinologists, one at a prominent center out West, another mm-hmm. who worked for an insulin company and neither of them brought it up yeah. nor did the third one. So this was like my third endocrinologist that I, cause I'd moved around. So I, it's, it was definitely a lesson in that, you know, there are certain reasons, like if you're not creating, if you don't present certain problems or issues, an endocrinologist may not focus on something. Mm. Um, and if I were having a lot of lows or if I had a much higher A1C, maybe they would have looked at that. But because I was like, oh, you're kind of doing OK. So I was in that little middle zone where it just it wasn't really worth. You know, well, they, they, you know, because I have to believe that they were knowledgeable of these dosing rules. But who knows? Maybe maybe not. But that one, one would think. Well, the story points out that, I mean, why research is so important, because basically you read research that told you, oh, I could be doing this differently. And the research that was probably common at that time for what a good A1C was, was telling the doctors that you were okay. So you weren't somebody to fiddle with because a seven, wow, that's terrific. Uh, Why? Because the ADA says that's good. And so that, you know, so they're kind of doctoring to these rules that comes from research. And now the research gets better and better and, Right. American Diabetes Association lowers that target, you know, and I think that's what the doctors work off of. They, you know, whatever, whatever ADA says, they're like, okay, well, that's what we tell people. Yeah, no, and certainly the the ADA standards of care are that, you know, they update every year Mm -hmm. that they're extremely important. And um, but I wasn't actually hitting the target. I was close, but my A1Cs were ranging between seven, two and eight. They were in those like mid, mid sevens kind of thing. So, but it wasn't you know, a nine or a 10. So it would, and I wasn't having, you know, a lot of, of lows. Mm-hmm. So, but you know, the, the, the old dosing logic, you know, the, a one unit for 15 uh, grams of carbs or one unit to correct um, 25 milligrams per deciliter. Um, that's what they had me on that ratio, which apparently year, many years ago was, a common thing to start people on. Right. I don't know if they often move them off of it or, or what. I haven't really looked into that, but I know I've had educators, diabetes um, care and education specialists. Now we call them, um, you know, comment on how earlier in their career, that's what they dealt with a lot. They use that, that ratio, but getting more data and research and people looking at these topics, they realized, and particularly with pumps where you're gathering the information you can track and analyze it, that, yeah, that's that's not right. And you can look at someone's total daily dose and um and their weight, their body weight. And you know, there tend to be these, you know, averages and and ranges that that work. And that's not what I was on. So again, I switched it to a one to ten from one to fifteen. Right. And I switched it to one to thirty-five from one to twenty, where it was at one to twenty-five. So I was constantly I was underdosing for my food and then overcorrecting. And mm. I was just in this little yo-yo thing. And and it was it was enough. It was keeping me, you know, getting me ultimately back to a point in between meals where maybe I was getting, you know, closer to closer to where things should have been, but it wasn't ideal by any stretch. So that was, that was, you know, definitely a, um, a big aha. And because I had just started using a pump the year before, you know, you, you, you are collecting this data every day so you can analyze it or someone can analyze it and, and help figure that out. Mm-hmm. Uh, 
Well, especially so. people can't see you, but you're a you're a big person too. Like you're tall and you're strong, and like one to fifteen seems, you know. I mean, Arden is a, a a woman, and you know, gets a period and has a bunch of hormones going on. But she would laugh at that if I if I covered Arden one for fifteen, I might as well not give her insulin. So, <laughs> and you could pick Arden up and throw her across the street. Is my point. <laughs> so it's a uh, it's just really. It's interesting how they're like, well, this is the standard. Give him that one. And then no one ever goes back and looks at it again. That's the fascinating part is that yeah. you, you, see, you, you you turn it on. It's like turning the heat on to 80 and then everyone's always hot and no one remembers to go back to the thermostat and, and go, oh, we could probably adjust this here. It's just uh, it's common, honestly, yeah. through, through the years. Yeah. But, so, you know, situations like like that. You know, we we T1D exchange, we, you know, we call ourselves a real world you know, evidence organization, like we gather information from people in the real world, not in, not um, in kind of these artificial uh, clinical study environments that just don't, aren't the way people typically then lead, live their lives on an ongoing basis. Um, and, you know, we're trying to gain insights and understand things about what's happening when people use products out in the real world. Yeah. Um, and we, we also help recruit for study clinical studies that people are doing because we have to get these products out faster i mean i it is amazing when you read how many times a study can't find people uh, way behind on enrollment and i've actually had kind of strong <laughs> discussions with companies like why do you accept this if you work with some sites some clinical sites that aren't recruiting fast enough like we've got almost we've got twenty thousand people who have um, registered with T1D Exchange uh, to be a part of research and to participate, we can help find people and send them to your site or, you know, go to a link uh, virtually. Like we can help speed these things up. Right. And then, so the faster the products get to market, great. But then there's this whole second phase of learning and knowledge about then what happens when people use them in the real world and do the things they're going to do uh, because they're also living life. And, you know, we're trying to get devices connected into our registry so we can see people's CGM information and see how it relates to the other information they provide, the surveys they respond to. And that kind of, I think there are a lot of things that can glean from that. You know, we did a big project with Vertex, which um, was presented at some medical meetings, which is why I'm you know naming them and talking about it. Um, you know, and they're working on this really interesting uh, beta cell replacement therapy, which I think is our online community is thrilled to hear about and very excited about the prospects long-term, you know, for that, um, that kind of a solution. There are other companies working on it too, but, you know, they wanted to understand severe hypo um, glycemia and impaired hypo awareness. And, and how often is it happening? How often do people need assistance with their severe hypo? And what were the circumstances around it? And, you know, we looked at CGM data uh, for a thousand people on top of a, you know a total of 2000 survey responses about different aspects of that so we could really contextualize it and they had questions they wanted to understand because their product and the study that they're doing is for people who have this severe um you know hypo uh an impaired hypo awareness so right. it's it's um you know it's it's extremely important to get more people in to research. It is going too slow. We could absolutely get new products out faster. And I mean, I'm talking the entire industry, mm -hmm. new, new sensors, new pumps. Um, you know, I, we, we have these conversations like every week with a company that's, you know, 
enrollment is slower than we'd like, you know, every time, particularly if they're recruiting children um, as well. I have a quick ad break here, and then we're going to get right back to Dave. Gvoke Hypopen has no visible needle and is a premixed auto-injector of glucagon for treatment of very low blood sugar in adults and kids with diabetes ages 2 and above. Find out more. Go to gvokeglucagon.com forward slash juice box. Gvoke shouldn't be used in patients with insulinoma or pheochromocytoma. Visit gvokeglucagon.com slash risk. I'm going to read you a review that comes right from contournext.com forward slash juice box. Same product, works well, and half the price of what I pay after insurance at the pharmacy. will definitely buy again. Amazing deal. Cheaper for me than buying through insurance. I got 50 more strips for about the same price. Expiration dates were good, plus they arrived very quickly. Very happy with this purchase. Contournext.com dot com forward slash juice box. We're talking about the test strips that work in the contour next one blood glucose meter. Head over there now and find out what I'm talking about. Do you really know what your test strips cost you? Because it may be cheaper to buy contour next test strips over the counter without a prescription. Again, you could learn about this at contournext.com forward slash juice box. Here's why this is important. I don't care if you have the latest CGM. Dexcom G6, Libre 3, Dexcom G7, whatever you have, that's terrific. I think it's amazing. You still need a good, accurate blood glucose meter. That's why I'm asking you to look into the Contour Next One. This episode might be sponsored by them, but my daughter's every day is supported by the Contour Next One blood glucose meter. It is the one she carries and uses daily. Contournext.com forward slash juice box. It is small, easy to read, accurate, and easy to carry. There's nothing more you need. This whole business about the test strips maybe being cheaper and everything, that's a bonus. Look into that on your own, but get the damn meter. It's freaking terrific. Uh, Contournext.com forward slash juice box, gvoglucagon.com forward slash juice box. Links in the show notes, links at juiceboxpodcast.com. And even though they are not a sponsor of the program, I do benefit when you go to t1dexchange.org forward slash juice box, but I think you can hear in this episode that I'm really just trying to get everybody behind behind the movement that helps bring where we are with diabetes forward. We need you. We need you to fill out the survey. That's it. Just, Just keep listening. Dave explains it again. I give up. It is so hard to get people to do stuff like this. I know it seems like it's a big deal, but it's not. T1DExchange.org forward slash juice box. Join the registry, fill out the survey, and just like that, you've helped. You've helped move things forward. All right, now let's get back to Dave. And thank you for listening to the ads. I really appreciate it. Uh, Please use my links if you're going to buy something. Yeah. And well, so it's it, it to to flip your life around and what you do for a living and and kind of think about it from somebody else's perspective. When people say, "Well, I don't understand like why is this only um recommended for children 6 and older?" It's because they 
couldn't do a study for children six and under. It takes longer. Well, don't worry, we're getting to it. We're getting to under two. We're getting. It's because people don't do the studies, and that's the only way this stuff happens. And I do, Dave. I do my part on every one of my episodes when it opens up. I'm like, go to t1dexchange.org forward slash juice. But I just keep and it's. I mean, a lot of people listen to this podcast, and still, I don't push that many, like like people to convert to you, at least in my heart. I'm sure you guys are happy with how many people come through the podcast. But for me, I know the number you told me when we met, like we'd like to add this many people and it's a lot. And then you, you, I don't know. I've become ultra aware of how difficult the job is to get people involved in, in research. And I mean, I understand it from their perspective, but it's just, I mean, you're not asking people to go to a site. You're not asking them to, you know, cut off a finger to see if it grows back. Like, right. You're like, take a survey. Can you just take a survey? It, you yeah. know, it's, I don't know. Take a, ten, take a 10 to 15 minute survey. Right. And then from there, we will follow up with other opportunities, but that's, you know, if, if it doesn't fit, if you don't, you're too busy at the time, what have you. And it could just be another online survey mm-hmm. or it could be. Hey, would you be willing to connect your Dexcom, uh, your Clarity account, and just you know you, you connect the login information? We have a simple little couple fields you enter in, and then boom, it's done within a couple minutes. And you know we're gonna have a we're we're gonna have another few thousand people do that in the next six months. Oh, that's cool. Um, yeah. So you know, it, research, I, and I'll I, I've um, I believe that most people just have this ambiguous view and they hear research they think i have to go drive somewhere and deal with hassle and fill out forms and give blood and do this that and the other and there are times where there might be a study that is fairly intensive with a new treatment particularly if it's something being put inside your body um but there are other times where it's just it's not what you think it's not that big a lift you know and oftentimes there's compensation to account for if you have to take time out and go travel or go do this or that so you know it's uh, we try to spend a bit of time educating people that research can mean many things. Right. It could also, it could be just what are your attitudes about doing something? And so that these companies that are working on things understand using your product may be more burdensome than you think, or going to get screened for, or have your you know immediate relative screen for autoantibodies. Um, people don't really understand where to go or how to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, well, you know, every- has an interesting program with T1 Detect that certainly they should look into, uh, you know, for that. Um, but it is it is something that we're, we spend a lot of time trying to demystify it and explain to people here is this is what research is. Here's why it's important. And, and there is no doubt we could all pitch in to help make things happen faster. And your point about the six year olds or what have you. Yeah. You know, the, these companies start with the the adults usually and then they work their way down you know there are additional rules and safety measures when you're involving children in any kind of research and so you know um understandably so it's it's something that you have to be very have lots of safety data and really understand even before you then go do the official study to get um the indication for that and sometimes it happens because there are doctors out there that are willing from what they've understand of the research that exists they're willing to try it out on some of the, the patients. Hmm. And then you get that, you know, some of that volume of information builds, you know, just, I mean, that happened with CGM and dosing, right? It used to be adjunctive therapy, but so many people were dosing and not 
doing finger sticks and just going off their CGM. And some of that information that was gathered at T1D Exchange helped with that years ago. Um, some some of that information is what ultimately kind of led to the label change, so that you are you know um, you know permitted to dose you know your insulin off of off your, your CGM exactly yeah. enough, and yeah, so in that replace BG study they did. So well, it, it's, it's so you're saying that in that exact in that example. People had CGM and they were like, well, I, this thing's accurate most of the time. I'm just going to, I don't feel like testing before I eat, I dose. And then enough people do that and they gather enough information that it becomes its own study. De facto, it's not even on purpose. Then suddenly they go, look, this is what people are doing and it's working. And then you are able to show that to the FDA and then move forward. And the company, by the way, who can say, look, our product's doing what we expected it to do. This is amazing. I, I don't know. I mean, for me, I would, I think I would take some pride if 10 years from now I looked up and saw, I don't know, a two-year-old kid with diabetes wearing a the G97 sensor, whatever it'll be 10 years from now, right? And and this kid's smiling and laughing and living his life and the mother doesn't look like she's about ready to pull her hair out of her head or, you know, the parents aren't arguing, their lives are comfortable. I would think, well, I did that. Like, you know, on some level, my participation helped us get to this place and, I, I do take, boy, I, I think when I think by, when I try to imagine why people wouldn't do this stuff, it is my inclination that it's what you said earlier, is that they're, they're afraid that they're going to be asked to do something that they don't want to do. And I don't have enough time in a 30 second spot to explain to them, like, look, if you get an email and you don't want to do it, just don't do it. Like delete the email. Right. Yeah. <laughs> like it's just, just say delete, you know? No, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. And I, Scott, I do want to make the distinction of, um, you know, participating in research and, and, you know, that's our goal. We want people to, to join the, the, the T1D exchange registry and start that. It's a very simple lift to be able to contribute. And, mm -hmm. you know, the more people we have, then when unique situations come up and someone says, Oh, we'd really, do you guys have people that have had transplants? We want to look at this particular issue and it's hard to find these people. Well, yeah, we happen to have 78 people that have had either kidney or pancreas transplanted. And, oh, well, what about this? What about other transplants? And we we can be the law of big numbers. Just if it's a very small percentage, but we get our numbers up, we can find we have people that will will meet some of those criteria. So we're able to help people, you know, uh, and help recruit for some studies that are very difficult. Yeah. But I do under and we should definitely I should emphasize, you know, there products are labeled or indicated for a specific purpose and absolutely people should you know where possible stick to what that is you know but if their doctor is talking to them or they're they're looking at something that there's a lot of safety information out there it's just not officially in the label like well then you know there might be an opportunity to you know talk to a clinician about doing that or what have you i was working in industry i was doing lots of testing of sensors and checking my blood sugar and looking at this data. And I knew how the sensor performed with me individually. Mm -hmm. Some people, these sensors can be much more inaccurate. Yeah. Uh, and, and earlier versions definitely were less accurate. So, you know, if people were hesitant to dose insulin until it was absolutely in the label and their doctor said, yes, ab well, absolutely understand that. But I was in the center of information gathering and seeing this. And I, I knew a lot of other people that were, and and then I was monitoring what was happening, and I was I was constantly vigilant, like, oh, if I see my blood sugar dropping, and maybe maybe the sensor was reading 
higher than it, my blood sugar really was. And then I gave it too much insulin. And then, so I was always focused on that. And, you know, that, so for me, it was something I was, you know, willing to do because I felt like I understood those risks and I could mitigate anything that happened. But, right. um, I, listen, I wouldn't do anything blindly because anybody said it was okay. Arden's been sick away at college this week and we were fighting high blood sugars. And I said, I texted her and I said, look, we're going to have to make like a big bolus here. You got to test first. Like, I'm not just going to, I'm just not going to go off the CGM. Like I, like I want, I want some, you know, I want some, I want other numbers. Like, let, let me, let me see. So she tested CGM was, I mean, she was in the low 200. She was like around 220 or so. I think the CGM had her at like 224 and she tested at like 218, 215, something like that. So I was like, okay, let's do yeah. it. Like, let's go for it. But I, I don't know, like the, the longer you have diabetes, the more you recognize the moments when you just want to like, let me just, let me just check here. Like, you know, like, let me make sure I, I, and your point about it just doesn't work for somebody, some people. CGM, Dexcom specifically, works terrific for Arden. And I'll have people contact me and say, I don't understand how you, like, how can you use an algorithm? My kid's CGM is never anywhere close to what their blood sugar is. And, you know, you respond back and you say, look, do you have a an accurate meter? Maybe you're checking with a meter that's not accurate. Maybe the CGM is more accurate than the meter is. Maybe your kid's not hydrated. Maybe, like, I don't know. I, I can't tell you what the reasons are. There are checklists you can go through to kind of get yourself better. And then at the end, I have met people who are just like, it just doesn't work for me. And I've asked, I mean, I've asked people at Dexcom about it and they'll say, yeah, I mean, sometimes it just doesn't work for some people. We don't know why. Um, you know, so you got to be careful and and do what works for you. You can't just say, oh, the box says it's okay. I'll do it. You know, I mean, I don't know. You know, you, and the more I've worked in kind of, the industry I've worked for startup CGM companies where I was wearing six sensors at a time and then checking every 15 to 30 minutes on my fingers and all that. And you realize the variability that exists both within one person, but more importantly, between people, mm -hmm. the inner and intra variability, like it's people, there are just, <laughs> there's a lot of different operating environments out there <laughs> for the human, the human beings. And, and, you know, th these, these products work really well in a lot of people, but that, you know, there are some people that just, some people's A1C reads lower for, for a certain average glucose than someone else's. And th that's really come out a lot in the last several years where you can have these ranges in A1C with the same average glucose mm -hmm. and just the way the hemoglobin and the way red blood cells work in certain people, you know, um, you know, African-Americans have an A1C that's 3.3% higher than a white would be with the same exact, you know, glucose on average. Really? Yeah. Because yeah. of the way that, you know, that was all developed. And so, you know, that's another aspect that we, you know, we're focused more on now is can we help with diversity in study recruiting? Um, because people are slow with recruiting in general and they tend to skew towards, you know, white and female in a lot of different studies. I've seen NIH data for over 20 years, you know, our own um, registry, you know, historically you, you've had more participation um from from that group and not as much you know from you know different groups of people of color so we're trying to work on what can we do to to get the word out to more people to to explain ourselves better and, and what what they're really participating in when they join us and work you know we've we've been working with some great you know influencers 
out there on social media who, um, you know, are, are good about getting the word out and, and uh, you know, messaging it in the right way um, where it's relevant. So th- that's been, um, you know, a positive, but we have, a, we have a lot of work to do still. We're still not where we want to be to be completely representative of the type one population in the U.S. Well, you mentioned the law of big numbers earlier, and I imagine that that's probably why this podcast does well driving people back to T1D Exchange, because I have a larger group of people that I'm reaching to. I've learned just getting people to click on things, you know, for anything, for ads, for my own site, you know, for content that I've made that I know helps people. It feels like you've got to reach a thousand people to get a hundred people to look up and that gets 10 people to click. And that makes one person say, yes, it's, it's a, it's hard. It's so it's hard work, you know, getting getting people to stop what they're doing and do what you want them to do because there's a a greater purpose you're solving for. Um, yeah, it's not easy. And you know, our, our marketing team is, is, you know, and our registry team are, are doing a good job of part of it is working with people like you to, to get out to different audiences and people who are uh, credible and have a relationship with, with a group of people like that's important. That's a very important, um, you know, kind of tactic for us to get more people to, Mm -hmm. to participate. It's been, it's been pretty successful. And we, you know, we add over a hundred people a week um, into the registry and that's, you know, because we've got, it's not just, you know, we're empowering others or connecting with others who are able to reach out to all these other people. Right. So that's definitely something. Uh, well, yeah. I'll share something with you that it's a little back room, but I don't mind people hearing it. I've learned using T1D Exchange specifically as an example, um, and maybe it maybe this bleeds into other stuff, but I can explain it. I can say, look, it's easy. You know, hey, here's some people who have done it in the past. Like I've gotten feedback from people. I've gotten photos of people like, hey, I'm at the airport. I'm going to do this thing. I'm on I'm on a Dexcom. Um, I'm testing Dexcom adhesives, right? There's something people complain about all the time. This girl is, is doing it. She's wearing a bunch of, I saw a bunch of G7s on her arm and she was flying somewhere and she was super excited. They compensated her. And I share that with people thinking, well, there's something people are, you know, passionate about like adhesives. And nothing, but one, and and it's interesting, I can say it here because there's no ad here, but I'm not allowed to tell them that, like, specifically, like, I can't incentivize people to do a thing. Like, can you explain that? Like, why can't influencers, like, there's a law, but explain it to me so that they can understand it. Do you know what I'm talking about? Well, I I mean, when you're involved in kind of, and I think it's a difference between a study versus... Um, there are different rules around a study and what you're allowed to compensate for versus, you know, a product that's out there. And, you know, the, the whole notion of if a company is, you know, they have their own healthcare compliance rules right. about what do they believe based on laws is an acceptable way to compensate people who might be doing something. And if you end up you're paying people to use a product, th- there are all kind of rules that can come into that. Um, well, it, same thing, like even with copay coverage and the thing there are all these rules and then rules if someone's in a, a federal health insurance or um you know d- different uh, medicaid you know we, we would have these programs where oh you could you could uh, upgrade to the next pump when i worked at, at animus mm-hmm. you always had these little asterisks with all of the little caveats and if someone was with dod or the va or a state medicaid or medicare because the government has to get best price and there's this and that and you're paying you know there are all these considerations like that right 
um, companies need to be mindful of. So they may, you know, I, I don't know if your example was around like a research study versus um, yeah. actually like using a product. I had an idea. I know you know this because we've talked about it before, but I had an idea a year or so ago when I, I came to to um, to Debbie and Dave and I said, uh, I want to do a drawing. I said, I'm going to, we'll pick a number, whatever a reasonable number is. And then when this many people um, get on the, on the exchange, we'll, I, I will drop them all into a drawing and I'm going to go live with one of them for a week and help them with their diabetes. And your lawyers were like, no, no, you are not doing that. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and so, but my bigger point was, is that uh, when people learn, like, I have no trouble saying it. Like every time someone signs up to the registry, I, I make money. It's not like, you know, it's not like go buy a Ferrari money, but it's money. And so when people learn that, that drives them to sign up. And that is the thing that I started talking about that that surprised the heck out of me, which was they weren't even doing it for all the great reasons that I laid out. They were trying to help me. Like they appreciated the podcast. And like, oh, if Scott's going to, oh, good, we'll do it for Scott. And I thought, huh, I mean, that just, first of all, it floored me personally. I, I didn't expect it and it was lovely, but I thought, how are you supposed to get the average person who's not connected to a podcast host or, a, you know, somebody on Instagram that they love that they, that they can make the leap in their head? You know, this must help him. If I do this, I'll do it. it I don't know. Your job seems really difficult to me. That, that part of it is my point, honestly. Yeah. Well, I suspect the lawyers may have been more concerned about you living with someone for a week and like, you know, be... <laughs> listen, I was worried about that too, <laughs> but, but no, it's just, it's just interesting that you, you know, like I'll say like, can, oh, can I say this? Can I say that? You know, trying to get people interested and like, no, don't say that. Don't say that. And it's, and I've noticed it too with other, other relationships I have, um, like I'm, I'm getting ready to do a thing for Xeris right now. I'm getting ready to do a, an episode Jenny and I are going to do talking about how to use glucagon. And that's something that was my idea. I went to them and I said, I don't think people understand how to use their glucagon. I don't think they understand when to use it. I think that we have an opportunity here to talk to a lot of people and help them. And so they agreed and they wanted to do it. But then once you do it, the meetings and the, you know, you can't promise things to people. Like there's so many laws or it's very... It's, it almost makes it hard just to talk like a person. So you can yeah. say to somebody, hey, glucagon's important. Here's why, you know, it's it's tough, yeah. you know. Well, I mean, just watch the evening news or the morning news or any news and listen to a quote unquote patient with rheumatoid arthritis say, you know, for my moderate to severe rheumatoid arthritis, I like to use X. Is that really how people talk? Really? That, that, <laughs> but, but they have to put that in because the indication is for moderate to severe rheumatoid arthritis, probably not for, you know, I don't know the classifications mm -hmm. fully, but that obviously is like what their official indication is. There's characters, categories and tech, you know, de definitions there. So, um, you know, I understand like you have the FDA gives you, uh, you have claims and you have things you're able to say because there's some there's evidence for it. You've you've provided substantiation. And so you have to stick to the script. You don't, you can't go and make claims that are off. I, I mean, I, we, we had some people tell us at Animus, someone made a presentation and they had Yoda wearing an insulin pump and the, uh, the regulatory was not happy with that at all. 
because our pump isn't indicated for Yoda to wear. It's only <laughs> <laughs> we're like, wait, he met the age requirement, didn't he? Oh wait, no, yeah, it's like literally. This, so someone had to take that off of their PowerPoint. Um, right. An internal, but, an internal PowerPoint, right? Not even like something that the public was seeing. Yeah. yeah. Well, well, I think this person, this oh, person it? may have been showing it to to others. Oh, okay. Uh, but isn't yeah. that? So, but that's that's a great that's a great example of where common sense intersects those rules because there's no one who looks at that and thinks, oh, well, Yoda's real and obviously has diabetes and wears an insulin pump, but it's, yeah, a, it's, right. it's fascinating. Um, right. But I guess yeah. that could be an enticement too, right? Like that's how it could be looked at. Like if a child saw that, they could be enticed to want to use that. I mean, who knows who's thinking that way, but that's anyway, yeah, all these angles. I, yeah. I, I appreciate I'm, I feel fortunate that I spent as much time in industry as I did. You know, I was at J&J 11 years and then a number of smaller companies, uh, device companies, Agamatrix, and um, understanding the realities of what rules have to be followed, what constraints they have Mm -hmm. that I had to operate under. It does give me an appreciation for like why industry does certain things. It doesn't mean I, I think everything they do is right. And I agree with it all, but I certainly understand this is, this is probably why they're doing it because I remember the conversations I had with quality, with regulatory, with legal medical affairs. So it's um, there are a number of things that, you know, need to get, I'd love to see improved. um, But I also understand some of the realities that it can't just happen overnight. But the one, one of the areas we can is, gather this information about what is actually happening out there in the real world and gather the information, conduct research. And we have research and data scientists on staff with PhDs who are very good at what they do. And we're able to do a lot of that, um, those type of things. But we also just literally forward study opportunities to our, um, our registry participants and try to encourage them to participate. Mm -hmm. And everyone else is doing all the heavy lifting on the study. We help get as many people to look at that opportunity and try to sign up for it. So, right. you know, you mentioned adhesive. We've done a couple things um, for a research organization uh, looking at adhesives for a CGM company. Um, we've got another company now that wants to do a survey of people who use a certain um, patch pump to understand how how satisfied are people with their adhesive um, because this other company wants to use that adhesive as the litmus test of like, maybe we should be targeting that. So there's a lot of things we can do because we have thousands of people who use this, you know, hundreds of people that use that. And and we're able to go target them and get a certain percentage to respond. And, um, you know, we, there's often some, some, some compensation to participate in a, in that type of thing. Um, Cause you know, it's people's time and we understand like, sure. you have to, you know, there's a fair market value. You have to pay people for their time. You should pay people for their time. If you, you want to get as much participation as possible, not everyone, you know, can can just stop doing what they're doing to go help you out because you need something. And that's, that's a mantra that, you know, we've tried to live by. Yeah. To, to support the people who are supporting the work. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. Well, it's, it's, so you could do this with a clinical study. This could be uh, industry and this could be academic, right? Like you support all those three ideas. Yeah. yeah. We we've had researchers out at a university say, Hey, we like during COVID, I want to do a survey on telemedicine users and see kind of what's, 
you know, what their experience is, have they done it? What type of visit did they do it with? And this was back in like late 2020. Mm -hmm. So we did, we were able um, very reasonably to recruit. uh, God, it was, it was, might've been a couple thousand people to, who, who completed this information um, for this Dr. Crossan out at UC um, Davis. And um, I think she just published on that work recently, but um, you know, sometimes it could be literally a five minute survey uh, for on behalf of someone, some researcher who has, who's really trying to nail down something and understand what's going on or, or gain insights in a particular topic. Um, so we'll work with companies Um you know, we we will work with an academic center that isn't recruiting as many people as they want from their patient pool. Mm-hmm. So we'll say, well, here's how many people we have in within an hour, uh, you know, driving distance of your location. We could send out something to those people, um, and we did that for someone who had like a novel biologic uh, from newly diagnosed to try and halt preserve whatever beta cell function was left mm-hmm. by halting the immune reaction. The goal really is to move before the symptoms present, move earlier when people are kind of in those stage one and stage two of, of type one, like before the symptoms present themselves, but you you are having that, you know, you are going down that path. And so that's something that we're definitely getting more involved with. Um, but there, and, and the, there are companies and, you know, prevention bio may get approval here in four weeks uh, for their, their product um and something must be happening with that dave because they're on my schedule pretty soon so they must be pretty hopeful <laughs> yeah. yeah they have that date. you know the fda has a date where they have they're quote unquote required to mm. give a decision i think it's november 17th yeah so literally it's it's four weeks from yesterday um i think that if my math's right um yeah that that's that there's that's when the PADUFA date, they call it, where they should be hearing um, about whether or not, you know, they obtain the regulatory clearance to market that to Plizumab. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, yeah. They've been on before and it was just like mind blowing, like what they were trying to accomplish. It, and just the, even the, the thinking outside of the box, because my daughter uh, was diagnosed after getting hand, foot, mouth. And the way he was talking about maybe we could slow down, like, like put aside what we're doing here for a second. Like, what if we just inoculated people against Coxsackie virus? And because yeah. if Coxsackie starting that many people down the road of type one, I thought, my gosh, like, is it possible that my two year old got Coxsackie, which, of course, you know, she obviously had um, markers for type one and it, it kicked the whole thing off. But could she have lived? 10 more years without getting sick in that way or 20 more years or like, you know, really. Um, yeah. Who knows? Like yeah. I, I, a couple months before I was diagnosed, I had a nasty stomach bug. Um, I don't know exactly what it was. I, I just, I was green and like, it's the only day of, of school I missed because of sickness in two years in grad school. And, um, you know, I, I thought it was bad Taco Bell. I had the night before <laughs> in in West Philadelphia and that's what I I just thought. And then as I started working in the diabetes field, and I started reading about, you know, enterovirus, Coxsackie virus, you know, the the um, how often it's associated with it, and and even some of the research more lately, where they're saying like, you know, they're seeing it in the pancreases of seventy or eighty percent of the people uh, who have type one mm-hmm. um, when, when they've looked at tissues. So it's uh, 
at diagnosis. So, so it's, I, I think it seems like there's growing evidence about that relationship right. and, um, you could see very different approaches to public health, you know, because of something like that. Yeah. Well, and it, yeah, I, I'll tell you the reason I brought it up just to be transparent is because Dave obviously can't, there's some companies you're not naming by name on purpose. And I hear you kind of like talking around it artfully, but anyone who's listening, who's aware of the diabetes space, all the big things that are happening and all the things that you want T1D exchanges in is generally speaking involved in. So take the damn survey. Like that's all it just go. It, it, seriously, 10 minutes. I took the survey for Arden back when she was uh, a minor and then she take she had to take it as a you know when she went over eighteen yeah. she took it again right. for herself. Right. And, yeah, yeah, and it's just it's not difficult. I I did not run into one question where I thought oh I don't know the answer to this. And there, like now my date is helping somebody, and it's and moving us towards all these things that everybody wants. And you know you were really uh, passionate about it in the beginning, talking about that things could happen faster and they could happen probably better. You just you know, this is the process and we don't have enough people to do the studies. Yeah. yeah. And where, where, you know, where I've had this kind of, uh, I would say puzzling discussions with a couple of companies where they're then telling their sites, Hey, we want you to work with T1D exchange. And some of the sites say yes. And then there are a couple sites that say, well, no, we like to work with our own patients. We don't want outside patients coming into our clinical study. They want to deal with patients that have been going to see them. They know who they are. They have their information in the electronic medical record. They know they'll be a good study subject. And I'm like, this is the problem, mm. right? If we if we keep doing things the same way, we're going to get the same results that, and those results aren't great, right? JDRF had some stat about, you know, how many studies fail because they can't recruit enough subjects or in, in fast enough time. Right. Because every day, you know, it costs money to put on a study and you're, it's just, it's an expensive proposition. And then if you're, you know, you're just dragging that on it, it it's, then there's competition. It, it's just very difficult. So I said, why, why do you allow that? You're developing a product. You're trying to get to the hands of patients. The patients want it. And you're going to allow someone's um, attitude of, no, I don't want to have outside patients. I need to have that. Like the people that are in our registry are people with type one who have an interest in research. You, you've already gotten an enriched pool. Yeah. So, so you know, one of the companies we're talking to absolutely agrees with that, and so they're circling back, talking to some of these sites, and they're going to be a little more insistent. Mm -hmm. And, and I, if I were in their shoes, that's exactly what I would do. Well, what, why are we tolerating this? Yeah. You know, let's, let's move forward. Let's get things out faster. And then once products get out faster, it, it's out when they're out in the real world. Then you learn new things and new opportunities. When I worked in pharmaceuticals at J&J, &J, that was like the number one mantra was it's impossible to forecast how well a product will do in the market um, with a certain amount of accuracy. There's just way too many variables. So we would do have all this like science and approaches and analogs. And we had a product that ended up being like three or four billion dollars that they had forecasted to be 50 million um, because once it got out there. Then some doctors started using it for something else, and they realized, "Oh my God, look at this! This actually helps." Yeah, it, it, yeah. So, and that spawns something else. And just when you get something in the hands of people and clinicians using it and recommending it, you may learn something, even just how to use it more effectively. That can then reinforce the whole thing. So, right. you know, it, it's. Um, well, 
I think yeah. also that data coming back to the companies once they have something on the market helps them understand how it's being used or where it's falling short. And it allows them to to put more resources towards bettering it or fixing it or updating it. Like you going on Twitter and being like, this don't work. I mean, the company's going to be like, all right, like, yeah. you know, like, what am I going to yeah. do with that? You know, it's. It, it's one of the benefits of actually all these products now being connected products with Bluetooth or what have you, and then sending data up to the cloud. Now the companies are getting to see a more direct line of sight about what's happening with some aspect of the patient and their data. They, you know, it, it may be blinded, but they know that they can see things happening up there. Like, wow, look, we pull all this data together. We can see X, Y, Z is occurring. Um, and, you know, th there's some really powerful information that the companies now are seeing for their own people. We're trying to get, you know, all connected products, like trying to link that data in so we can do comparisons and look at a broader kind of representative look about how people are faring out in the real world. And, um, you know, that's one of my things is I, I still I marvel at the fact, like, why we don't have more people using a, a connected a Bluetooth glucose meter. If you're not going to use CGM, th there are affordable BGM products out there mm -hmm. that you can you can get a 50 count of test strips for um, you know, like nine dollars or ten dollars and uh, and test with a Bluetooth glucose meter. And that data, you know, can be then available to a clinician or a family member or, or what have you, just like we have Dexcom and the follow and, and you know, a lot of a lot of these off, uh, products now. Um, that that's something that I think for the, those who use BGM, you know, it would be great if we had more of more that, that occurring because, you know, it's very hard for a doctor to get insight on things if they don't understand the date, they don't see what's actually going on. Yeah. And I'm assuming too, I mean, I, I know a little unfairly, I know that far fewer people than you might imagine of the however many people have type one diabetes in America, far fewer of them than you might imagine use an insulin pump. And I'm assuming that far fewer of them have CGMs than you think too. Everyone's got a meter. Like everyone just has a meter. And so I guess there'd be, I would imagine you'd get data back that in the beginning, you wouldn't even know where the value was until you actually dug into it to, to, to figure it out. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah I, no, I would say our best estimates right now you know, that CGM usage for people with type one, it's over 40% now. Really? Because the last couple of years, it's really, yeah. You know, having Abbott and Dexcom just working hard, upping their game and, and Medtronic getting, improving, you know, now th th their better sensor is is on the, the, the cusp here uh, within their system. Um, you know, you're going to have three good options, you know, when, when that finally gets out, right. um, we do a lot of work in our quality improvement with all of the diabetes centers, 50 of them around the U S right now, where we, where one of our big thrusts is trying to drive CGM usage mm -hmm. because the evidence is there that people do better when they're on CGM. So, uh, but it's still not, in our collaborative, which are a lot of leading, larger academic medical centers, it's still, it's maybe at 50, 51, 52%, something like that. Um, but we know across 
all of the U.S. Yeah, you've got other segments of people where it's much less. So yeah. I think it's in like the low 40s. So you know that means exclusively there are you know 50 some percent are using VGM, and of those, how many are using a connected one versus just a regular one where you have to download it in and someone has to look at it in Gluco or some other download program and then make sense of the pattern. You know, it's it's um, th- things could be done a little bit. Well, back in the day, I Arden Center didn't have the cable for her. PDM. So we never downloaded her data ever once. And, you know, they were just like, here, oh, you have that one. We don't have the cable for that. And that was it. (laughs) That went on for years like that. Yeah. When you're, when you're counting on, when you're counting on stuff like that, you're not going to make big leaps. And, you know, I I mean, for people who have been around diabetes, you know, less time than you or, or I, it, you don't recognize that just a decade ago, You'd get a new meter. It wasn't even more accurate. And you were excited. You're like, oh, somebody made a new meter. You, you know, it, it, things have leapt forward insanely over the last, I mean, decade, right? Like, since, Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, I, I left Animus 10 years ago. You know, but at that point, we, you know, the, the CGMs were just getting more accurate, like to where you were getting close to 10, well, this 10% number is this this accuracy measure that they look at of the difference between it and like a um a lab value blood glucose and and that was like the threshold to look at and and um they were like 13 percent you know um and they started off at 20 percent, which was bad so the first versions were bad that was like 2006 mm-hmm. uh from 2006 to 2012 they dropped that down from like the 20 percent, 19 20 percent down to like 13 percent, and then you got into the like 10 percent 11 10 percent and then now you're down in the eight percent eight to nine eight it's plenty active that's yeah, very you can good work accuracy. with that that's for sure yeah 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 no. and and you're right the 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 when i left you know the, the on the blood glucose meter side it was like oh we've got a, a color screen or a backlight or some new tagging feature exactly. to tag post meal it, it wasn't um but but bluetooth was just getting thought about mm-hmm. but you know people don't remember i mean i remember when we were t- at a, we were talking to dexcom about um their g4 and was it going to have bluetooth or ant with some other com- radio communication technology that i didn't really understand mm-hmm. um and, and so i remember they made the decision to go to bluetooth which is a smart decision but like 15 years ago that wasn't understood if Bluetooth was going to be the prevailing standard or not. And, yeah. the, and it, there was a lot of variability in how people implemented it. And then things got standardized and, and better in a, a more stable technology. And it's been the mainstay for the last 10 years, but those five years before it, it was up in the air as to what mm. was going to happen. Oh, tandem held on just for having a color screen. And <laughs> right. Like they were, they were, I mean, I don't know how true this story is, but I've heard that they were getting ready to pack up and just go overseas and sell the, the pump. And they just held on and held on a little longer. And people, there was a day when if you talked about a tandem pump, all you would hear was like, oh, it has like a color touch screen. And then, and that was enough to make people interested. And now you say tandem and you hear people go control IQ. So look where we got to because they were able to hang on a little longer, you know? So, I mean, we need competition. That's for sure. The idea that Medtronic and Abbott and Dexcom make sensors is is good for people living with diabetes. Um, it will keep everybody innovating and moving, and 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 that part of it is is yeah. and Sensionics. We should we should point oh, out uh, ever since, right? Much much 
much smaller amount, but absolutely competition. I, and I've said this to people at both companies, um, uh, just Dexcom and Abbott on the TV commercial side, like it, you know, Abbott came in and, and made some waves and then it, it, they both had to kind of fight and be competitive to try and, you know, yeah. as many people as they could. And, and it ended up now it, there's a lot more awareness amongst people and clinicians and what have you, because of all the direct to consumer advertising that's taking place and just both, you know, having bigger companies competing. Yeah. You know, if, no. if, if one company can just do it all, you know, they're not, they don't have to put in as much effort to go get the people. If you were yeah. if you were watching a Padres game the other night, you saw a home run go right over a Dexcom sign yeah. in, in the outfield. And that's yeah. that's insane to me. Like for th- that's a diabetes device, you know, on the wall in the outfield of a major league baseball stadium. Like I that is just not something you would have seen in the past. And you know, I hear people sometimes like these companies, they make so much money. I was like, good. I was like, that's how they're going to do this companies that don't have money don't do things like that they don't they don't invest in innovation right you don't invest in innovation unless you're making money on it so i understand like look these things aren't cheap there's no doubt about it uh you know and then there are things that can be done and i think to, to lower the the cost of making them and part of it is the bigger they get the lower the the individual cost of each item will be because they have these economies of scale that they'll get so right um, you want them to be big to lower the cost. Yeah, because eventually my expectation is, my expectation always is that one day Dexcom will call me and be like, hey, we don't need these ads anymore. And that will mean to me that a greater percentage of people have them and it's become commonplace. Like getting a, a glucose meter would have been 20 years ago. You get diagnosed with diabetes. You said it in your story. I got diagnosed with diabetes. They gave me insulin and a meter. Here, boom. And there'll be a day you'll get diagnosed with diabetes and they'll be like, here's a CGM right away. And then yeah. you would hope yeah, that's when the price starts to fall on them and, you know, because right. they don't have to do all the other stuff now. And we see that happening in certain places. Um, I think Stanford starts people on CGM right away, but sometimes depending on their insurance, yeah, it, it can end up that something doesn't get covered um, right away, the CGM. So they happen to have a grant that helps cover that until they can get things squared away or what have you. So that's one of the ways that they're able to just make it a rule and say, oh, you're diagnosed, you're going to start with CGM. Huh. Stanford has gap insurance, you're saying, for CGM. It's stuff. basically How like a that? gap insurance, yes. Yeah. Um, as I understand it, that that's the... That cool? Yeah. Oh, that's amazing. Well, is there anything we haven't thought of or, or talked about that you wanted to? No, I just want to remind people T1DRegistry.org um, is is the T1D Exchange you know registry um, location. But I know you have your... Yeah, they, your, yeah. they can't your, use that link. Don't use that link. <laughs> You're yeah, going to use, use my link. <laughs> forward slash. Give, give them the link, Scott. Give it's them the link. T1DExchange.org forward slash juice box. There you go. And that'll get you to where you were talking about, right? Yeah. Yeah. So that way we can, we can keep track at least of where people are coming from to join us. Um, so, um, yeah, I should have I should have used no, that. I'm, I'm joking so, with you. I, any way they get there is terrific for me. Yeah. Um, no, but, but that's, you know, what we've 
like I said, we hit the 20,000 mark. We add a, over 100 people each week, but it gets harder and harder every week. Like, because we've hit so many people, we have to keep trying to find new groups of people. So, mm-hmm. uh, you know, we're constantly trying to think of new ways to find pockets of people who, you know, um, have type one and are not participating yet and to try to make the case, hey, it's very simple join. And then we're doing the work to try to find studies that might be of interest. There might be some new thing that, yeah, you don't care about these other ones, but this one new one that we send, that might be something of interest you'd want to be a part of. We have a woman who works for us who is on, who got to use on the pod five because she was in the clinical study before she joined us. Really? Yeah. And that's the way she had access to use that technology and to have it covered. Um, you know, as part of that. That's amazing. Yeah. So, that, so, yeah. Sometimes, sometimes those things can happen. Other times it could just be getting your opinion on something. And that's just, you know, that's important too, but mm-hmm. we encourage everyone to please give us a, a look. Yeah. So. Well, I appreciate you coming on and, and, and going over all this. I just never feel like that I can accurately, I don't know, like I say, I, I do it in 30, 60 seconds at a time. And I'm like, I know I'm not telling these people everything that they would like to know about this. So I appreciate you taking the time to go over everything with me. Yeah. Well, no, I appreciate you uh, having us on and, and, you know, you've, you've been a great, uh, you know, uh, kind of advocate for us. So we appreciate you uh, getting the word out to all the people who like to listen to you on all the topics and the speakers that you bring on. So Uh, it's my pleasure. It really is. I, I think it's a big deal. I don't know a way to magically get more people to want to be involved in research. So this is my, this is my little bit of me trying to get people to do it. So it's, it really is my pleasure. Thank you so much. Right. Thank you. A huge thank you to one of today's sponsors, Gvoke Glucagon. Find out more about Gvoke Hypopen at gvokeglucagon.com forward slash juice box. You spell that G V O K E G L U C A G O N dot com forward slash juice box. I'd also like to thank the Contour Next One Blood Glucose Meter and to remind you about all the great information that is available at contournext.com forward slash juice box. And of course, if you're a U.S. resident who has type 1 diabetes or is the caregiver of someone with type 1, t1dexchange.org forward slash juice box. Complete the survey. Uh, That's it. Thank you. I'm still getting over COVID, so I have no energy to do all the things I'm supposed to do here. I'm supposed to remind you to go to the private Facebook group and become a member. To, um, oh, I might, I got a little bit of the brain fog, you know what I mean? It's not terrible, but like today I'm super tired. Yesterday I thought, oh, I'm better. COVID's gone. Here, here. Cheers. I took a drink. I can't believe I went to do that. My drink is gone. Um, <laughs> And today, uh, woof, feels like somebody pulled the plug, you know what I mean? But it's only day 11, so what do I expect? Anyway, uh, if you're enjoying the podcast, please share it with a friend, uh, share it online, tell people about it, download old episodes, uh, definitely head to the private Facebook group or to juiceboxpodcast.com to get lists of all the series that are involved Involved is not the right word, but again, I'm really tired. All the series that are available inside of the podcast, like Defining Diabetes, Diabetes Pro Tip, Diabetes Variables, Defining Thyroid, Mental Health Stuff. I mean, there's 
just so much I can't, even if I had all my faculties right now, I couldn't remember all of them to tell you. Anyway, find them at juiceboxpodcast.com in your podcast app or in the featured section of the private Facebook group. I really hope you take the time to fill out the survey at T1D Exchange, or at least that you appreciate how hard it is to to do research and, and to move these things forward after hearing this conversation. I really have to go now. I'm completely winded and this might kill me. T1DExchange.org forward slash juicebox.